Good morning, Mance Road Church. It's good to be here with you today. I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We'll be going through verses 8 through 16, continuing our series in Exodus together. There have been a few things that have been used across history, across cultures, across the world that really give people a shared identity and a symbol of pride. Flags have long delineated who we are as individuals, what groups we belong to, and what we want to claim as our own. For the military, flags have been historically used largely during battle to rally the troops together, to reorganize, and to find strength to continue their advance. Therefore, some men, probably not anymore, but back in the day, would be enlisted as flag bearers. They would carry the regiment's colors into Badava, into battle to signify where the strength of the regiment was, since many could get lost in the field of war amongst the smoke of artillery and the heat of the fight. This was a dangerous job, though. These flag bearers had to be courageous since they were unarmed, leading the regiment from the front, and they stood out as a large target for the enemy lines to see. If one flag bearer would get wounded or killed, they would drop their the person next to them would drop their rifle, and they'd go and they'd pick up the flag and raise it once again so they could carry on and battle together. It was during the first battle, first day of battle at Gettysburg, the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, that there was one Confederate regiment that had said to have lost 10 different flag bearers in 10 minutes. And they lost 14 flag bearers that day. Despite how dangerous the job was of a flag bearer, every single person on the battlefield, whether it was friend or foe, knew the importance of that job. All the soldiers were trained to follow the flag. For the people of Israel, they had just experienced the salvation of the Lord, coming out of Egypt, walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, waves crashing in on Pharaoh's army behind them. And experiencing such a rich gift of deliverance, I'd stand here and I'd like to think that they'd have grateful hearts and passionate praise towards God. And we did see that a bit in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses, but really it didn't last long. Israel is now delivered out of their known circumstances in Egypt and brought into unknown circumstances in the wilderness. When we read the three scenes leading up to our text this morning about Israel's grumbling their complaining, and their great need in the wilderness, they lost sight of their banner. Their salvation from slavery in Egypt faded out of view as they grumbled about their present circumstances. And we ended that third scene last week in Exodus 17, 7, with the Israelites asking the dangerous question, is the Lord among us or not? And it's with that context that I want to invite you to stand with me as I read our text this morning. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. This is God's holy, authoritative, and life-giving word. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God 
in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Well, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It's by your word that we have life. Father, it's by your word that we're able to see how you're working um, all things according uh, for our good and for your greatest glory. So, Father, help us to see this morning how you're bringing glory to yourself in the Israelites' lives, but then also how might we see that we can bring you glory from this text. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. As you can see in our text this morning, Israel's going to find out very quickly whether the Lord was among them or not. And really to be sympathetic with Israelites, the Israelites' circumstances, I too would be asking where the water was coming from, where the food was coming from. And now faced with an army right in front of you coming to attack you, I'd be wanting, starting to wonder, can God really be trusted right now? What is the flag or the banner that you look to or lose sight of during the heat of life? Who or what is your banner when sin or suffering clouds your view of the battlefield and you can no longer fight on your own? Everyone here has a banner. Maybe it's trusting in themselves. Maybe it's their financial security. Maybe people just try to think enough positive thoughts to get them through the battle of life. But in the end, we all know that none of those things will give you the hope, the strength, or the direction that you need when you're at the end of yourself and in the depths of your sin, like the people of Israel were. Therefore, my aim this morning is to encourage you that God mercifully fights for you despite your sin against him. God mercifully fights for you despite your sin against him. Israel was at one of the lowest places they would be during their wilderness wanderings here against Amalek. And Moses, as the representative leader of the people, he responded in faith in two ways that I think can be instructive for us this morning. He modeled for the people of Israel and for us, relying on the power of God and trusting in the promise of God. So that's where we're going to spend our time here this morning. Uh, let's follow Moses to see what it looks like to rely on the power of God. So it was following the grumblings in the wilderness that Israel is faced with a greater physical challenge than the need for food and water, the Amalekites. 
Amalek was a known descendant of Esau and Edom. That's recorded in Genesis 36. And there really isn't any given reason here in the text for the Amalekites' sudden aggression towards the Israelite company. And there's nothing in the text to suggest that Israel did anything to provoke this hostile and sudden attack. All that Deuteronomy 25.18 tells us about the Amalekites is that they did not fear God when they attacked the Israelites on their way out of Egypt. But little to their knowledge, by attacking the Israelite company, the Amalekites were actually setting themselves up against the Lord. And looking at the context of this passage, it should be no surprise to us why this section is placed right here. Moses recounted what happened at Massa and Meribah in chapter 17.7 when the people made that question, is the Lord among us or not? And it's in the very next verse what falls uh, what falls next before the people of Israel? Overwhelming opposition. Hostile evil. And the largest external difficulty that they'd have to face in the wilderness. People would soon have their question answered. They soon would know if the Lord was truly among them or not. Would God fight for his people? It's often we ask questions that are similar to this. And the Lord will respond in a way that we didn't normally, or what we wouldn't normally expect. For Israel, some writing in the sky saying, hey, I am here. That would have been a little better than a hostile enemy coming to take you out. Maybe you've prayed to the Lord that he'd humble you, that he'd open an opportunity for you. And he answered that prayer in a way that you did not expect or see coming. It might have been painful, but aren't you able to look back and see that the Lord had answered that prayer for your good? The Lord often works in a way that in the end it's only possible for him to receive the glory. God in his mercy would in fact answer the question, their question with a glorious display of his power in their first military endeavor towards the promised land. Verses 9 and 10 say, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. They had their battle plan set. Joshua was going to assemble some men, go out and fight the Amalekite army, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur would go up to the top of the hill overlooking the battle. Since talking with God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Moses had now experienced the tangible power of God multiple times. He took with him to the top of the hill that staff which symbolized God's active presence, authority, and power as we've seen throughout. And going to stand on a hilltop nearby was a, often a move of a king or a military leader of taking a position of authority or control over a battle. And yet it was not Moses who would be taking control of this battle. There isn't anything listed here about how the battle ensued. There isn't anything listed here about who the soldiers were that were fighting against one another. We read nothing here about the Israelite casualties. Attention is solely focused in our text this morning on Moses, Aaron, and Hur on top of the hill. 
And what we see in the text is that what happened on the battlefield below was directly correlated with what happened on the mountaintop above. When Moses would raise up his hands towards heaven, Israel would prevail over Amalek. When he would lower his hands, Amalek and his army would have victory. And Moses noticed that correlation between his actions and the people's success or lack thereof. When I was in college, my least favorite class by far was statistics. I don't know if I was just bad at it or it was bad towards me, but I didn't do very well. Something I did learn in my statistics class, though, and our teacher drilled this into our minds every single class period. He said, correlation does not always equal causation. And that is true. But when you are seeing a strong correlation, you have to be able to have the evidence to prove that a certain cause resulted in a certain effect. Moses was probably better at statistics than I was. He tested this correlation. He'd raise his hands, see the success they were having, and then he would drop his arms and observe. Once they started to get overwhelmed in battle again, he would shoot up his arms and they would experience success once again. This wasn't a magic, uh, magic light switch by any means, but during this battle with the Amalekites, it was God's power through Moses' actions that would directly correlate to the Israelites' success. He would raise up his hands to appeal to God, signifying their dependence upon him to fight for them in the battle. He was appealing to God not only to defend his people, but to destroy their enemies as well. He very well knew that it would be God's present power that would be the difference between victory and defeat. But would the Lord save and mercifully fight for his people despite their sin against him? The last couple of weeks, I've been consistently meditating on Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14, as we've been reading about these wilderness wanderings. And in that psalm, David praises the Lord, saying, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord showed compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that so kind of the Lord? He remembers we're dust. He knows we're dust. And he shows such rich compassion and mercy towards us in our weakness and when we are neck deep in our own sin. It's who the Lord is. He comes alongside us and leads us as our banner through the battle. And he has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us as he goes to war with all the enemies of God on our behalf. It was mercy that day from the Lord that he would fight for his people in the wilderness. Before, before we move on too quickly, 
there was a big problem yet to face. Moses' hands grew heavy and weary. There was no way that he was going to be able to keep his hands raised up until the going down of the sun. And Moses likely realized that his actions would determine not only if the Israelites would have success, but if they would live or die that day. The stakes were heightened with the protection of God's people in the balance. So as all good friends do, Aaron and her find a rock. They help Moses by propping him up, sitting him on this rock, and they would hold his hands up for the rest of the day. With this stability, in verse 13 it says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now there's nothing really significant about Moses' arms here in this passage. The one thing that is significant about Moses here, the leader of the people of Israel, was that he was weak and frail and lacked the strength in himself to keep his arms raised for the entirety of the battle. Moses wasn't strong enough to fulfill his role in the battle alone. God seeks to strengthen us when we are weak and inadequate to fight in the battle alone. But he also uses means to provide that strength to us. And one of those means employed here for Moses is through the community of Aaron and Hur standing by his side on that hilltop. Strength can be found for you too in community. It's just looking around this room that I can see um, faces and I remember the numerous stories, including my own, how God has used this community, Emmaus Road Church, to strengthen someone's faith, to strengthen someone's resolve to do the right thing, to strengthen someone's marriage or their parenting, or to strengthen someone's grasp on the truths of the gospel. Moses wasn't standing up on top of that hill shouting at Aaron Hurst, stay away, I've got this on my own. No, he availed himself to the grace that being connected in to community can give. And it's my prayer too. Are you availing yourself to the community that God has given to strengthen you, to sustain you? And if you haven't, start today. Turn around to the people next to you after the service, say hello, and see the way that God is going to move to impart grace and strength to you by being connected to a community. Thinking of Moses' weakness, I also can't help but hear Paul's words to the church in Corinth when he says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In our weakness, may we pray to seek to live in a way that our lives would be a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that others' faith might not rest in us, in our strength, but in the power of God. Are you in the midst of a battle right now? Are you battling your own indwelling sin that keeps fighting its way to the surface? Are you battling against debilitating sickness or disease 
that leaves you weak, feeling helpless? Are you battling the suffering right now that has left you bruised and beat up? Have you considered how that weakness might serve to magnify the mercy and the power and the glory of God? Seeing God's display of his present power for the Israelite army should make us rejoice that God didn't need to break or need a break due to weakness. As soon as Moses' hands were raised again, the Israelites experienced success. The weakness of Moses served to magnify the mercy, the power, and the glory of God. God fought for his people that day despite their sin. And Moses and the people acted by faith, fully relying on the present power of God. And that was step one for the Israelites. They then looked to trusting the promise of God. Following the conclusion of the battle, the Lord speaks to Moses in verse 14 saying, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Remember that God's promises are always linked with his commands. He promises that he will deal with Amalek and his enemy armies so that their opposition will not hinder Israel's progress towards the promised land. He's going to deal with the army and their cruelty and that there will be no memory left of them. So what are the commands then linked with that promise? They were commanded to, to write and to recite. Moses was going to write down the promise so that it could be read and shared with generations to come as Matt prayed this morning. People who would come to read this promise later knew that the Lord would bring it about since they had remembered his victory in war against Amalek. Moses was also to recite this in the ear of Joshua. Joshua would later take Moses' place as the leader of the people of Israel. God wanted his people to never forget how he had and how he would mercifully fight for his people despite their ongoing grumbling and sin. How do you seek to continually memorialize God's saving work in your life? Maybe you make it a habit with your family around the dinner table at night to recite gospel truths together. Maybe you make it a point to encourage others when you talk to them about how you see God's saving acts and is working in their lives. Maybe you share a meal with your missional community and you tell them about a gospel conversation that you had with a coworker or a neighbor where it finally seemed like things were starting to click and a breakthrough might be on the horizon. Take time to celebrate those things. May we never go a day without remembering and rehearsing God and his saving works towards us in Christ. The people were encouraged to be reading and hearing the good news of the Lord's protection. In their wilderness wanderings, they had been through a lot purpose of remembering and writing down and reciting was meant to continually bring the people's attention to the comforting truth of a God of providential care, foreseeing our needs, planning ahead for our welfare, and awaiting us with his solutions, sufficiency, and salvation. Commentator Alec Modier says, in a word, the trials of the pathway may take us by surprise, but never him. They may catch us unprepared, but never him. Left to ourselves, they'd be more than we could bear, but we are never left to ourselves. By ourselves, 
We would not know which way to turn, but we are not by ourselves. God has planned the course we are to take and walks with us. We can say with David, as for God, his way is perfect and he keeps my way secure. And that's what Moses celebrated that day on the hill. He would build an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. As I said earlier, a banner is used as a rallying point uh, for, for an army or uh, a regiment to regroup, refocus, re-strategize, and find strength. Soldiers in battle always looked to their banner. It establishes their identity, helps them know who they are. As long as the banner is still flying high, they know that the battle is not lost. Moses is saying, that's what the Lord is for us. He's not outside the fray, but he's decidedly in the fray with us. The Lord is whom we look to when the enemy surrounds us and we have nowhere to go. The Lord is who we come to for mercy and grace when we've sinned against him, we've doubted his presence. The Lord is our rallying point when we're in the heat of the battle. We're taking blows from the threats outside of us as well as the threats from inside of us. The Lord was still indeed among his people despite their sin. How much more for us? Despite your sin and your rebellion against God every day, the Lord hasn't distanced himself from you. Instead, he's promised you and reminded you that he's already died to save you. Paul writes to the church in Rome, it's far while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It was at the same time when we'd receive bountifully from the Lord one day that we turned and forgot his provision the next. It was at that time Christ died to pay the penalty for that. That's mercy. Moses repeats the promise then to commemorate what the Lord had done for them at the altar on the hill, saying, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses had confidence that the Lord would do what he said. He knew that whenever the people were under attack, they could rally to his side. We too know that that promise will be fulfilled when we look to the end in God's word. Revelation 19, 11-16 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All the harm that the enemies of God had done to his people will be dealt with through God's righteous judgment. But also all the pain, all the loss, all the suffering that God's people have experienced will one day be healed and redeemed. It's only a few verses later in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7, where Paul writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God 
is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That glorious finale is for what all who are in Christ will enjoy. God would surely dwell among his people. And it's promises like that, like the one in our text today, that the Lord will have war with his enemies from generation to generation as our banner. They echo other promises in Scripture about our banner. Commentator Philip Ryken helpfully says, The Lord is our banner too but in a way that Moses could hardly have imagined. The prophet Isaiah promised a day when the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal before the peoples, and of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's that word translated signal in that text. It's the same word in Hebrew as the word banner in our text today. The Lord wouldn't just be a banner for the people of Israel in the wilderness, but he would one day be the banner for all peoples, nations, and languages that he calls into his ranks. Isaiah's promise is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the root of Jesse who stood as a signal, a banner for all the peoples to rally to him. The people of the earth who have yet to be redeemed from their sin, from their rebellion, They're lost and without a banner that can lead them through the battle to victory. But the decisive blow has been delivered. And Jesus, the root of Jesse, now stands as a banner, opening wide his arms for all that he's predestined to be called to himself, to fall in line and to follow him as the Lord's chosen and spirit-led king. Just like that day in the wilderness when Moses stood on top of the hill with his arms stretched wide where the Lord worked salvation, protection for his people, so too Christ hung upon a hill with his arms outstretched wide to welcome all into his ranks. It was the greater and final victory that day that the Lord would accomplish for his people. It's now that dead hearts like yours once was, like mine once was, with no desire to know him from all across the world, they will come alive and will seek to know him and to do his will. The Lord will have war with every evil people, every destructive ideology, every lustful thought, every prideful action, every bit of vain speech, and every discontented gaze. The Lord's judgment on those things is just. And he will punish all wickedness on the earth. Yet, when you follow and cling to the banner, Jesus Christ, he stands upright and secure after suffering from the full wrath of God upon your sin. Christ was punished for your 
sin. And after receiving that death blow, he now stands tall to rally all soldiers that he has died to save. The wicked and their deeds will perish, but the righteous will stand secure as they hold on to the banner, the Christ. So as you, follow, or as you fight the battles of your life, you can cling closely to the only steady banner, to Christ, when confusion, doubt, and guilt start to press in. When you see a friend lose their grip on the banner, be there to listen, to help, and to help them cling back on so they can hold on tightly once again. In your discipleship huddle, take time to encourage each other each week to rally to the banner when the busyness of life can cause us all to be disoriented. Take time to encourage your spouse each day to rally to the banner with you where you can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. In just a moment, as a body, we're going to have the sweet opportunity to rally to the banner to Christ together as we share in the Lord's Supper, as we hold on to his death, his resurrection, and the promises that he has secured for us. So Emmaus Road Church, friends, despite your sin, despite your grumbling, despite your weakness, the Lord in his mercy fights for you as you rely upon his power, as you trust in his promise, and as you take another step today towards that promised land where we will see his face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we sinned against you and spurned your name, you've poured out that punishment on your son, upon our banner, Jesus Christ. Father, it's now that by faith we can hold on to the banner as we walk through the confusion, the fog of life. But Father, I pray that we would not just hold on worried, but that we'd have confidence. This banner will never fall once again. He has already received the death blow, and yet he rose from the grave. So Father, as we take time to remember that now as a body at the Lord's table, pray that you would encourage us, strengthen our face, and help us to see anew once again. Father, we look to you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.